I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen, over the last few years, how deeply compromised big media really is, and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative dictated by those in power. I won't ever trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck, but you know what that means. <laughs> that means I need your support. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, where patrons do get early access to episodes, exclusive access to select content, and the opportunity to submit questions to future guests ahead of interviews. You can also support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page and, of course, the follow button so that you don't miss new episodes. You can also subscribe to The Same Drugs on Substack at meganmurphy.ca. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I am speaking with anthropologist, evolutionary psychologist, and author of a new book called Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships, Robin Dunbar. Robin, thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I was very interested to discover your your book and your work. Um, I think friends are <laughs> one of the most important things in the world, and I'm, I'm so glad to find a whole book uh, justifying that belief. <laughs> Yeah, well, friends are the beginning and the end of <laughs> the secret of life, really. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think that there's lots of reasons, lots of very obvious reasons that we might see friends as being beneficial. Um, but one of the things that we don't necessarily think about immediately is about how friends can impact our health. Um, so I thought that was a, a compelling aspect of, of the research that you compiled in your book. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that. How can friends be beneficial? I think one of the things that you found was that um, having friends even can make you less likely to fall prey to disease, for example. Yeah, this is a culmination, really, of a huge amount of um, epidemiological work that's been done over the last mm, 15 years, maybe, which I think has caught everybody left field. And that really has been to show that the best predictor of your mental health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, and even how long you live into the future from today, 
is simply the number and quality of close friendships you have. And the, the kind of typical optimal number is about five, be a bit smaller for introverts, probably a fraction higher for, for extroverts, but typically about five is, is where we need to be. Um, but that comes off the back of a lot of work, including a lot of ours, which has shown that people are just happier and more contented. They trust the community they live amongst. They um, have more friends in their neighborhood. Um, if they uh, you know, have this sort of core group of um, close friends with whom they're well embedded. And the key to it is not just to be able to sort of do what 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 kids in kindergarten do, which is say, you know, Jimmy's my friend, um, when actually Jimmy doesn't want to be your friend at all. Um, this has to be a two-way thing. Friendship, of course, it's a two-way thing. So it's having meaningful friendships of that kind really seems to lift your um, psychological state, you know. Well, I sometimes describe it as the best antidepressant medicine you can get and it's free, <laughs> just costs you a bit of time. <laughs> you don't even have to spend money on it. Um, but the effects are, are, are absolutely extraordinary and, and they're just popping up all over the place in, in terms of, you know, serious physical illnesses, your likelihood of catching kind of virus-driven diseases and some cancers that are influenced by uh, the number of friendships you have. And that is probably, um, there's a sort of hint in the, biochemistry literature that the mechanism involved is that the things you do with friends well I suppose you might say there's there's two parts to friendship here that the work in this context one is that they turn up with a bowl of chicken soup when you're stuck in bed with, with some dreaded disease uh, in other words they come and you know do favors for you and 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 uh, help you out in a, in a kind of more physical sense but also it's the kinds of things we do to build friendships um laughing together telling stories together singing dancing occasionally on the tabletops um uh, those kind of things eating together um trigger the endorphin system in the brain the endorphin system in the brain is part of the brain's pain management system it's an opiate but we don't get addicted to it. It's, it's um, uh, chemically slightly different to enough to the uh, dreaded opiates, which these days are causing such a problem everywhere that you know, they, they, it doesn't have quite the same addictive properties. Um, uh, and that's, of course, because they've evolved to manage this system and be part of our biology. Um, but, but they turn out when they're released in the brain to trigger the immune system I sometimes describe it as tuning up the immune system in the sense that they trigger the release of um, uh, natural killer cells in particular in the white blood cell system. And natural killer cells particularly target viruses, um, you know, which is kind of ideal just at the moment, um, and also some cancers in particular. And so, so there's a kind of clear biological mechanism there that, uh, indirectly if you like allows friendships to affect our physical health and well-being and not just our psychological health and well well-being i mean the psychological health and well-being is much easier to see because that's the kind of natural um way that endorphins act they they you know they are 
give you a lift and, and they make you feel relaxed and calm and, and at peace with the world and, and the world's a wonderful place and whoever you're doing this activity with, laughing, singing, dancing, having a chat, is a wonderful person and, and uh, all's well with the world. And, you know, that's that like <laughs> psychological uplift that it gives you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm curious to know how numbers factor in, you know, like, is it, is it having a lot of friends? Is it the, the kinds of friendships that we're having? Is there like a magic number of friends that you should have? Well, you might, you might well suppose that uh, if friends are so beneficial for you, uh, the more friends you have, the better. <laughs> have an infinite number of friends and you'll live forever. Um, unfortunately, it's not possible. Um, for two key reasons, um, there are very strict limits imposed on the, the, the number of friends we can have. Um, one is simply that friendships or any kind of relationship of that kind, family relationships or friendships, are extremely uh, expensive to process. It involves a lot of thinking about what the person is doing and why and, you know, why did they say that yesterday and did they mean it or are they just pulling my leg? All these kinds of things. That that That's extremely hard work for the brain to do. Therefore, uh, there's only so much space in the brain in effect um, for friendships. And that limit really appears to be at about 150, the number that's known as Dunbar's number. So on average, you can't have more than 150 friends and family, I may point out, extended mm -hmm. family are all in there. Um, and typically, you know, in, in the kind of modern world with our small families, um, that 150 would consist of about 75 uh, ex members of your extended family. So way out to second cousins and, and a bit beyond, maybe. And the other 75 would be true friends. So it's kind of split. 50-50, although I hasten to add, uh, as I've been told many times by people, if you come from a big family, uh, you don't have many friends because it takes you all <laughs> your time getting around your cousins. And if you've got 40 first cousins, which, you know, is not unknown in, in, in the contemporary world. Yeah. Um, uh, my wife, for example, has 40 first cousins. Wow. Um, uh, I think I have um, two. <laughs> well, well, I have one. <laughs> so we must have a lot more friends than she does. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, you know, but you you give priority to family by and large, and you know, by the time you've been around checking up on all your 30, 40 first cousins, you don't have a lot of time left. Now, the other side of the coin says so a kind of brain limit, if you like, what the brain can handle. The other side of the coin goes to the fact that building and maintaining friendships is actually very expensive in terms of time and you have to keep investing. Once you've built a friendship up, you've got to keep investing in it, otherwise it will fade quietly away if you don't see the person. Mm -hmm. So, so time-wise they're very expensive and, and we kind of distribute our time in a very characteristic way such that if you look at the structure of your social network, your extended social network of 150 friends and family, in terms of how much time you devote um, to each of them, how often you do you ring them up, how often do you post to them on social media, how often do you see them in the flesh, um, you end up with a series of circles. It's a little bit like the ripples on a pond where you throw a stone in. So if you imagine yourself as the stone 
sort of going out from you is is a series of ripples. Uh, the ripples get bigger and bigger, but the kind of height of the wave gets smaller and smaller. And that really kind of is a good analogy for your social network. The inner layers tend to consist of be very small, consist of a very small number of people, but the emotional closeness is very high. And then as you go out further and further, so you add more and more people in. But as a result, the emotional closeness declines because you're devoting less time to each of them. Now, just to put a scale on this of how expensive it is, you devote typically about 40% of your total social time to the five people in the center of your social world, the innermost circle. And you devote another 20% of your time to the next 10 people out. So those two layers that make up 15 people consume 60% of your total social effort. And, and we've measured it in terms of your emotional closeness to them. So your emotional capital, if you like, and you get exactly the same figure, 60% um, uh, of your emotional capital is devoted to just 15 people. And I'm sorry to say that the poor folks out in the outer reaches of the solar system here, um, around <laughs> the edges of your 150, get about 25 seconds a day on average from you. So you've got, you got, you got to accumulate quite a few days to uh, have enough time to spare to sit down, have a coffee with them, never mind spend the evening with them. And... So when we're talking about the the benefits of friends in our lives in terms of health, mental health, um, all of those things, we're not just talking about numbers then. So I'm curious to know how we're how we're gauging this. You know, what what constitutes a close friend and and just a cat versus like a casual acquaintance? Yeah, we've we've measured this in various ways. Um uh, originally, when we started doing this work, we actually just asked people um, who who you who would you see every week on average, typically who would you see every month typically who would you see once a year typically, and these produced a bunch of numbers which turned out to be these layers um, very neatly packaged. Um, we've since looked at them in terms of Facebook postings, so these are on. Uh, various um, freely available public uh, or publicly available Facebook data sets, which were released way, way, way back, I guess, before Facebook realized how much money there was <laughs> in these data. <laughs> uh, but but uh, it's as known as the New Orleans uh, Facebook <laughs> uh, data set for some reason that I don't understand. Um, uh, we've done it uh, on, on telephone data sets. So this is... Uh, cell phone data sets, um, uh, in the particular data set we used, it's 20%, the subscribers are 20% of an entire European country. So it's something like 6 million subscribers and 6 billion phone calls over the course of a year. Um, uh, a Chinese study has done a very similar study using um, a Chinese cell phone provider's data set. And we get exactly the same picture, no matter whether we look at, ask people, well, you know, how emotionally close do you feel to all these people? Make a list of, uh, you know, the, the emotional closeness. We usually give them a very simple one to 10 scale where kind of 10 is I love them dearly. And one is, well, you know, they're fine. Um, 
I'm kind of on the edge of being neutral. It's not a negative scale. There's no negative component to it. It's uh, people you feel positive about. And if you get them to rate all the people they know or they have in their address book or they have in their phone um, uh, uh, list, as it were, um, um, and rate them all, you know, these are the numbers that come out very nicely. And they turn out to correspond exactly to the numbers you get if you look at the actual phone calls uh, that they make or the actual postings they make. So we require those things like postings and, and uh, telephone calls to be reciprocated. So, you know, we can strip out all the kind of free call numbers um, uh, from, from, from phone um, uh, 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 data, as it were. That's easy enough to do. Um, uh, but of course, you still get a few cases where somebody's ringing their doctor or ringing their solicitor, or <laughs> their attorney, or their baker to order some bread. <laughs> and of course, not many of these uh, phone back usually. So if we, if you have a kind of rule which says there must be a re return call from 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 the number, um, it, it narrows it down quite nicely. And again, you know, with things like. Uh, Facebook posts. We've done it on Twitter as well, actually. And twi the Twitterati, the, the followers of a Twitter account talking to each other, posting in named tweets to each other in a conversation within a, a tw Twitter account, um, operating the same rule. You know, do you know who this person is in the sense that you name them and they reply to you? And, and that's <laughs> kind of repeated. So it's a kind of meaningful relationship. It may not. I hope in the, in the case of Twitter, these relationships don't last too long. Otherwise, it's a bit um, <laughs> bit worrying that there are people who are spending their entire uh, lives online and not meeting people in the flesh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the major changes, I think, in our world today is that we spend so much time online and so much less time interacting with actual real physical people in real life. Um, do you get the sense that people have started to confuse what it means to have a friend because they have all these online friends? They feel like they know all of these people, but they're not necessarily people that they're interacting with in the, in the material physically? I, well, actually, there's two comments that one can make about this. One is all our um, data on digital media, whether that's in the form of the telephone data sets or in the form of uh, Facebook kind of data sets um, or texting data sets, all suggest that they're very good substitutes for face-to-face uh, -face interactions, or at least we use them in the same way. So, so not only do you see the same layers coming out in terms of differences between the frequencies with which you contact different people, but actually the rates at which you contact them are absolutely identical. So that inner core of five best friends are the people you tend to see at least once a week. Obviously, some of them you see probably close to every day, but they kind of fourth and fifth person, if you rank them in order of frequency of contact, will, will, will come in at about once a week. And you see exactly the same rate of phone calling, exactly the same rate of postings on social media. So they do seem to substitute, um, although I think probably everything our, our data and other people's data on this suggests is they function a bit more like a sticking plaster rather than a 
you know, nirvana. So if you don't see the person once in a while in the flesh, it kind of doesn't prevent that relationship quietly decaying and ending up as a kind of just a, an acquaintance and, and not mm. a true friend. That takes a while for that to happen, though, of course. Um, so, so it's not a perfect medium, I don't think. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, then um, the second comment really goes back to the fact that I should think every time I have given a talk on this stuff and said, no, no, you've only got 150 friends in the world. There's somebody in the audience says, but I have 1500 on Facebook. <laughs> 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 to which I just sigh and say, yeah. <laughs> and you also have 1500 people in that same category in the real world. <laughs> just because they call them all friends on Facebook doesn't mean they're friends. <laughs> and in, in fact, in other words, what people are doing, in, in, the average number of friends on Facebook, and I cite here the single largest study ever done, which was published about 10 years ago, which was on 61 million Facebook uh, users' pages, right? Um, so that's, yeah, it's a fairly sizable chunk, even if Facebook's whatever it is, billion, <laughs> or is it two billion now? Um, uh, 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 subscribers, um, you know, so probably you've got a fair chance that you're, if you were on Facebook 10 years ago, you've got a fair chance you were in there in that sample, for which we thank you very much for contributing <laughs> to that. But, but what the study showed was that this huge number of people on Facebook, they looked at the, the number of friends that everybody had listed on their page, and the average was 149. Now, on the strength of that be, being so close to 150, uh, I'm, I'm inclined to suggest that I'm going to buy Abramovich's, both of Abramovich's yachts <laughs> off, <laughs> off, off the prize money uh, I'm going to collect on that. And I'm, I'm going to sit in the, um, uh, on my yacht in the Caribbean and we can do this interview on the sun deck with a pina colada. <laughs> So, so the, <laughs> the answer is, you know, if you look at the distribution of friends on Facebook, it looks very much like what you see in, in real life. On average, it's about 150. Some people have less, um, uh, you know, uh, for very good reasons. Introverts tend to have less than 150. They tend to be sort of a bit down towards 100. Extroverts tend to have more. They tend to be up towards 250. But of course, beyond that, people are adding in these sort of layers that we have in real life that go out beyond 150. So the next layer out is actually at about 500. We'd refer to that as acquaintances. So these are people you know. You probably work with a lot of them. Um, you go and have a beer with them after work. You might go on a kind of um, trip somewhere for the a, for the day to the seaside or whatever that you know been organized um uh but you wouldn't invite them home to your 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 family party right or or a family wedding or something like that um but you know them well then beyond that you know there's an, there's a layer that runs out to about 1500 um that's seems to be the limit on the number of people whose faces we can put names to you know so you know, for all of us, all over the world, uh, there are a few odd people 
uh, that everybody has in that lab, you know, Donald Trump, for example, for better or for worse, you would recognize him if you saw him in the street. Um, so, and that's the definition of that layer. And then beyond that, there's a final layer that goes out to, turns out, uh, goes out to about 5,000, which are people who, when you see a photograph of them, you know whether you've seen them before or not. Mm -hmm. Don't know who they are necessarily. Uh, uh, I couldn't put a name to a lot of them, but you have seen them at some point. And that, that layer seems to define really the limit on the number of people that you can recognize. And beyond that, they're complete strangers. And by design or accident, that was the limit that Facebook put on the number of friends you can have. I don't know why they chose that number. I'm sure it wasn't guided by anything because the people who showed this um, limit at 5,000 only only did the work about three years ago, just before lockdown, actually. Okay. Um, so it's, it's very, very recent. But I mean, I think Facebook just kind of plucked a number out of thin air that looked pretty large and not many people would have that number. And yeah. in fact, not many people do. I mean, there are a few, but most of them are kind of journalists using Facebook as a kind of information source or boy bands using them as a kind of cheap fan club. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Hershey bars, I have probably got a, 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 a product <laughs> page. <laughs> I don't know if they do. I know, I know Cadbury's, <laughs> Cadbury's bars did have... <laughs> pages yeah. for them and they're owned by Hershey I think <laughs> so I think we won't count that as Hershey bars um uh you know not many people have that number of friends because you simply could not know who all of them are mm -hmm. um uh, uh you know the number that you would have meaningful relationships with is uh, 150 and then you might push it out to 500 or maybe a thousand in terms of you know, sort of just because you keep getting please befriend this person messages on the system and you like pressing buttons. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but very, very few uh, people in this huge sample, um, uh, and there are others, uh, somebody else did a sample of a million Facebook pages um, and had produced, you know, something very similar to, to what I'm describing. Um, uh, very, very few people have more than ordinary everyday people let's say as opposed to professional users have more than about 1500 people listed um it's almost unheard of simply because you you wouldn't even recognize who they are you wouldn't know their names and you know, never mind anything else yeah it's a bit it's too much to keep track of <laughs> yeah yeah you know hard uh, enough trying to keep track of them <laughs> 50 people right important people right in the center right exactly <laughs> And, you know, I've actually, I've read, and I'm sure most of us have read, lots of research that says that married people are healthier. They lead a healthier life if they're married. Men in particular, I've seen that mm -hmm. research. Um, but I get the impression from your book that it's not actually necessarily marriage, that it's about relationships, friends, community. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I would say so. Uh, you know, sort of um, romantic relationships, uh, whether they're marriages or live-in partners or whatever, are clearly important uh, and, uh, you know, an important feature of, of almost everybody's life. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you need to have that, that, that couple 
that pair needs to be embedded in a much wider network of supportive relationships, both family relationships and friendships, um, in order to to um, function well. You know, and pro probably uh, as much as anything, to have somewhere to go, <laughs> shoulder to cry on right. when when it's really when going badly. Going well. <laughs> yeah, 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 get you through, get you through the. Um, the rough patches back to the sunny uplands, uh, the other side. Mm -hmm. um, so that you know that you know, and the, you know the many things that friends do for us in the sense of just providing a um, context for entertainment. You know, you, you end up getting very bored if you're on a desert island with just two people or even five people. Probably, you would probably end up killing them, frankly. Probably. So you'd you'd probably be crazy by those people <laughs> and right. feel less yeah. just driven mad. So, <laughs> so you know, it's important to have a, a, a widening circle beyond these kind of intimate <laughs> layers. Um, you know, that can provide you, you know, keep you sane and provide you with with all sorts of other benefits. And those other benefits are things like help with childcare, help with running kids to school or to the baseball. Or, or I suppose when they get teenagers to dances, <laughs> whatever they teenagers do uh, with their lives, uh, you know, uh, and and also kind of uh, providing a, a kind of network of information and help, help with moving house, help with you know, and you've got a tree to cut down in your yard that's just getting too dangerous, and you need someone uh, come and help you do it. You know, they're all those kind of things. Um, that that just make everyday life smoother and more and richer for us. So you know it's really important to have them. The the interesting thing in this context, though, is this very big gender difference between in the way friendships work and way relationships in general work, particularly friendships, mm -hmm. uh, because the pro the problem is that men are very socially very lazy. So what tends to happen? in marriages um, is the women dominate the social arrangements because they're much in that sense much more social so they go out and, and make friends uh invite friends around and, and and make arrangements for social things and the boys just tag along um and uh you know they they uh so so what the, the women are doing is is they're kind of making arrangements with their girlfriends and all the husbands and boyfriends and what have you tag along and they kind of mill about on the edge, uh, um, uh, staring into their cup of coffee or their beer or whatever's on, on offer at the event. And eventually they'll <laughs> strike up a conversation amongst themselves and they may form um, relationships and uh, friendships, as it were. And, and uh, this is very characteristic of boys' friendships generally is they're very club-like. So... Here's the making of, ironically, one of the classic uh, boys' friendship clubs, and that is the club of the husbands of my wife's girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. It's a perfectly functional uh, basis for, for, for being a friend because boy, male friendships tend to be much less about who you are as an individual than what you are. Do you... Do you belong to a club of some kind you know that may actually be a club you know the club of guys who who i don't know go out and 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 and, and throw a, a baseball around on a friday evening for something to do or go and climb a mountain or you know go canoeing it's usually some activity involved whereas women's friendships are much more 
a matter of who you are than what you are. So they're very mm. kind of focused and dyadic and 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 that sense much more kind of uh, emotionally close. Um, and herein lies the problem for the guys really is that it, if they get divorced or widowed, um, they lose overnight um, half their friendship circle mm. um, because all their partners, uh, friends, and family, of course, uh, on the in the first case, in the case of divorce, they think he's the baddie. Mm. You know, they're going to side with with their half of the family for sure mm. and their friend. So they won't talk to him. Uh, so instantly he's lost half his network. And because we're we're kind of, you know, very shy about these things, at least in the kind of uh, uh, Western world anyway, um, and we feel embarrassed if somebody is widowed, you know, sort of, um, you know, if you, if you, unless you know them really well, uh, you kind of feel very reluctant to go and sort of knock on their door and say, you know, how are you doing? Come out and have a beer or uh, let's go for a walk or something like that. We, you know, we've, we have this anxiety, terrible anxiety about doing this. So nothing happens. So even with the best will in the world, you know, they're probably sitting at home saying, oh, God, we ought to go around and see Jim and see how he's doing. But they just can't quite get off the sofa and go and do it. Um, uh, the guy ends up losing half his network. I think that then you have, you know, the cause of a lot of depression and and, and even um, the high highish suicide rate that, that you get in divorced and and widowed uh, men by comparison with with women. And I'm I'm curious now a little bit more about that. The differences in terms of how women do friendship versus how men do friendship. You know, how is it that men are connecting with other men versus how women are connecting with other women? Yeah, or just this... how they're connecting in general, I suppose. To sure. Other people. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is actually a really interesting um, issue because we hadn't expected it and it completely came out of the blue when we were doing our research. And then we, we discovered various other people, Joyce Benenson at, at Harvard, for example, was finding very similar kinds of effects. Um, and, and, and the, you know, the surprise was nobody really, well, we certainly hadn't really expected to find um, very striking with these kinds of very striking differences. The, the differences really bear down at, in, in large part, actually, to the fact that, as I've already mentioned, um, women's friendships are much more focused and dyadic, um, uh, whereas men's have this kind of casual mm. uh, f um, feel to them. You know, they, they, they really are a case of out of sight, out of mind. If Jimmy goes away, well, let, let's do the other way around. If Susan, your friend Susan, goes away, a girl will kind of be on the phone, on Facebook, texting, try and keep that that relationship going and keep it mm -hmm. fresh. Uh, and for for guys, it'll kind of be out of sight, out of mind, and you know they'll they'll just look around, and say, "Oh, we're we're a we're a guy short on the." regular Friday <laughs> who's next in the queue feels like someone's missing oh well <laughs> you know, oh Pete Recall. you know he'll do and yeah. they just shoot her on Pete in and he goes slots exactly into where Jimmy uh, uh ha had been in the group and um uh you know everything is dandy um uh, uh, this is kind of reflected also in terms of um uh 
other features of the close friendship circle. So you have this this phenomenon is kind of well understood and, and, and well known now as the, known as the best friend forever, a BFF. Uh, and, you know, that is extremely common in women. It's something in our data anyway, and, and we have several large samples on this now, something like 85% of women will, ha will have a best friend forever. And 85% of those best friends forever will be another woman. Mm. Um, and that that kind of remains very, very stable from, you know, sort of teenage years right the way through in, into to later life. Dips a bit in in old age, but um, you know, th throughout most of our active social life, it, 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 this, this frequency doesn't really change that much. Um, boys don't really have these kind of very close, intimate, emotional, emotionally close relationships. Um, if you ask them, you know, do you have a best friend? They'll sort of come and are a bit and say, oh yeah, I go out with Jimmy quite a lot, <laughs> a bit more than the others. Um, but it, it it still has a certain casualness to it in a way that isn't true. You're much more likely. So we did a study of Facebook profile pictures some years ago, which highlighted this very nicely. Because And what we found in, essentially is that if you, and this is a very, very large sample of, of Facebook profile pictures, if you have just two people um, in the uh, picture, it's very likely, and and it's it, two people of the same age. So it's, it's not you and your your mum, or your mum with you as a baby, or you with your baby, <laughs> uh, what have you. But two mm -hmm. similar age people, it's much more likely to be um, a, a, a girl's uh, Facebook page, and it's a fifty-fifty split between mm. whether it's a male or a female. The males are presumably we're dealing with very large numbers here mostly um their their romantic current romantic partner or husband or whatever and mm -hmm. if it's a girl uh you know they're very very likely to be the best friend forever mm -hmm. um you very rarely see two boys in a picture what you're much more likely to see is four four or <laughs> five right right and like they'll be doing something. something yeah <laughs> So it'll be, and that's say if it's if it's more than about three in the picture, it's never a girl's picture. It's always a boy's picture, mm. uh, and and they will be doing something. So it'll be five guys sitting on the, the top of the hill at Machu Picchu, mm. kind of peering down, looking down at thing, or five guys in canoes on on you know sort of the lake somewhere, or uh, you know, five guys sitting around a table. You know, uh, raising a glass of beer to the camera, be 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 some activity involved, rather than you know, sort of, uh, here's my best friend. These are my these are the guys I do stuff with, basically. So, um, uh, you know, that sense of this casualness thing, and also comes out in what, or maybe you know, it's more to do with how the relationships are built up and maintained. So we did this on a longitudinal study. Um, uh, if, if, uh, what we did over time was, was, was ask, and we had a group of people who are uh, helping us out with this, uh, and providing the, um, kind of regular, uh, phone bills, so itemized phone bills, so we could track their, their, um, who they were phoning and texting and, and who, and they were filled in questionnaires saying where they, who, who they actually saw in person and what they did, did with them. 
uh, and it turned out very, very clearly that um, uh, what, if you ask the question, what maintains a friendship over time, keeps it going, uh, once when the two uh, people have been separated, uh, these were college-age kids, so they, we, we picked them up at the end of high school, followed them through their first year at university, at college. Um, you know, it, that's a big change. You're meeting all sorts of new people, making new friends, right? There's a lot of turnover, but there are some friends you keep. What allowed those old friendships to carry on at the same level? For girls, it was making the big effort to talk to them in some way, either going and seeing them face-to-face -face or phoning them a lot. Um, <clears throat> If you looked at the amount of uh, the effective, you know, conversation effort in boys' friendships, it had zero effect, and I mean zero effect, on whether a French an old friendship would would last or or just die away. Hmm. But what made the difference for boys' friendships was doing stuff together, making the effort to to hmm. go back and see their friends and do something together. So you know, if they're kind of I don't know like climbing mountains together or, you know, sort of doing massive open sea swimming events, <laughs> these kind of crazy things that people do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was making the effort to go and pick those up. Whereas those kind of things, even doing more casual things like going on holiday together or helping people move house or uh, these kind of things, going shopping with them, or whatever. Um, yeah, they, they had some effect on, on how well a the girls' friendships uh, lasted, but it was nothing like the effect that um, it had in the case of the boys, or that it uh, the the effect of talking together had in the the, the case of uh, their own relationships. You know, so boys bang heads together in some way. That's how they make friendships, and uh, the one thing they don't too much is talk. Right. <laughs> And does that have, I mean, it's a, it's obviously a cliche that's true in many ways, but I mean, is that part of what's having uh, an impact on the, the level of friendship and the level of connection, you know, how they're engaging, like, it, you know, women are more likely to kind of engage in a more emotional level, I suppose, yeah. whereas men, as you say, are sort of just like casually doing things together. So it tends, it often feels like men's relationships are a bit more superficial than women's relationships. Not in all cases, of course, but uh, you you might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, but the, you know, I mean, the problem is, I mean, we always kind of uh, uh, dismiss things as as you know, it's just a stereotype. But the problem is, mm -hmm. stereotypes didn't come from nowhere. Yeah. They invariably come from. <laughs> observation yeah, of yeah. a very long period of human <laughs> history and into you know what actually happens um yeah. <laughs> so you know there is, it is a, yeah, I, I i guess if you're a boy you kind of go oh yeah well you know all relationships are a bit casual um you know and there are lots of kind of examples of that you know i think it, you you the number of times i've been told by people their wives usually you know, um, in uh, after talks when I talk about this stuff, is you know, oh, my husband, you know, uh, he's, he, he was off on a business trip and he was going right past the front door of his old kind of 
um, high school friend who me, you know, has spent hasn't seen for years, but you know, was, was a great friend of his. And I said to him, you know, why don't you go and drop in? And so, oh, and uh, get the response. Oh, maybe, maybe not. And I know Jolly Will is not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. if it was girls, they would do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, they yeah. make the effort. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's strange. <laughs> I don't quite get it. What is there something to that? Why is that? <laughs> well, well I, I mean, the, the problem is, you know, I mean, we tend to take the always take the view, oh, one must be better and the other not. Same with extroverts right. and introverts. Extroverts have more friends, but they have shallower friendships because they're distributing their time, their available social time more thinly uh, mm -hmm. for more people. Introverts uh, have fewer friends, but they use, they do that in order to focus and concentrate what time they have on their friendships to make sure they work well. And it's the same with the, the, the gender difference. It's just two different ways of solving the same problem. And obviously they overlap, all of these overlap in the middle somewhere, some, to some extent. Um, you know, they're just two ways of solving the same problem, uh, but they're probably driven by different requirements. and still kind of don't understand why the gender difference should be there. Um, there are kind of some suggestions that run along the, the line that in small scale kind of traditional societies, tribal societies, which obviously we spent most of our evolutionary history in until, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a you know, mere 8,000 years ago and, and many people even more recently than that. Um, you know, the, the, the young men, are the defense force and, and maybe even the police force but as the defense force of the, of the community they have to be able to stick together uh, and stick be beside each other's backs as it were in the face of the enemy you can't you can't you know you're not going to get very far if um, uh, you, your army on the battlefield even in the modern world suddenly decides they don't like this I'm getting out of here <laughs> they've got to stick with each other's backs um, and so you have to have this kind of bondedness, this group bondedness, and this sense of belonging to a group rather than uh, just to a particular individual. Um, and that kind of, you know, there's some plausibility to that. The, the converse argument with the girls, though, I think is interesting because if you look at most traditional societies and most small scale societies, even after agriculture, what tends to happen is the women move on marriage right so mm. um uh, it's not a universal uh, thing by any means but but disproportionately it's probably larger uh, number of cases in which the women move to the husband's village or the husband's camp than uh, the other way around now the problem for the girls in this context is they're going into a social environment in which everybody everybody else in the community is related by marriage or uh, in-lawship or uh, anything else you care to think of to the husband and they mm. have nobody you know because they've come from a different village now the girl's got two problems here one is she needs some moral support uh, in the in the context of any disagreements that might happen either within the marriage or with anybody else in the community and b the whole process of uh, uh, bearing and rearing children, particularly you know, we've, we've not done away with this by any means at all in the modern world, but in, in small scale societies, it's kind of a bit more 
focused and, and hard-nosed, if you like, is hugely costly in that you can't do it on your own. So, you know, having somebody else who is has a very strong relationship with you and will stand by you and put, put themselves out to come and help you with these, these um, processes of reproduction because, you know, they're, they're, they're not trivial. You do it wrong and, and, you know, you can end up dying. Uh, mm -hmm. very easily you, you just need need or we as a species just need help um so having a, a kind of close buddy who's really bonded to you uh, in the same sense of bonded as a romantic relationship but you know ha doesn't have that kind of um romance um uh connection as it were you can stand 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 aside from that a little bit um maybe hugely or may have been hugely hugely important i suspect it still is even in the modern world because you know obviously uh the girl's mother uh is the best person to do this or a sister maybe because they've got a vested interest both in the girl and in the in in the offspring that are produced you know mm -hmm. they, they, we all know this you know grandmothers will put down the knitting at the drop of a hat Go and help out <laughs> with grandchildren, right? Um, so it's it's the it's in effect the same thing. But then if they're not there, it it's really much harder work for you. And if this is the problem that that in many small scale traditional societies the girls have, I think is is that they're they're completely on their own. If they didn't have that support, and the, and you know failing a family relationship of that kind on on your side rather than the husband's side. You know, the best person to have a friendship with is somebody who has the same problems to deal with because that's a common bond and that's one of the kind of binding forces of friendships is, is somebody who, who faces the same kinds of generic problems and mm. you know, ways of doing things, as it were, as you do. That, that's a very, you know, this, this effect is extremely strong. Um, but we still kind of see that, I think. I mean, if you, you know, there's somebody's recently published some data on this, actually, which was interesting, but I've always had this sense that women who, particularly their first offspring, uh, is produced a, away from their fam home family environment. In other words, away from sisters and grandmothers who, who could, uh, uh, you know, come and help or, or, or be consulted uh in in you know over you know is, is the baby doing all right and is this normal you know um and all these kinds of things that we worry about with newborn babies have a much much harder time than women who um uh have that first baby in particular but i don't think it gets necessarily any better with later babies you know in in the home patch you know where they can literally walk around 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 to the block and knock on you know, sort of mum's door or sister's door and say, I don't know, I need some help. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. Like there's a, as much as we're, we're sort of almost overstimulated on our culture and it feels like we're around a lot of people, it feels like maybe we're engaging a lot of people again because of uh, social media and things mm. like that. There does also seem to be a big problem with isolation and loneliness. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, yeah. I, I think this came came through very clearly actually during lockdown, because mm -hmm. all, all the studies that were done um, over lockdown 
um, uh, you know, every everybody kind of found it very tiresome and and irritating. You know, not to be able to go out and do the kinds of things you're doing. But it all the all the studies have suggested very strongly that women found it much harder than the men. Mm. You know, the men kind of went, oh God, means I'll have to spend another two hours online on on my gaming program. <laughs> 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 oh well that's not so bad you know? <laughs> whereas whereas the women were kind of getting much more frustrated and um you know i guess depressed maybe and so on because yeah. they couldn't go and see um uh, their friends in the way that or their you know family in the way that they did and quite clearly you know uh, despite the magic of zoom and, and uh, skype and all these other uh, digital uh, media um it just didn't quite work in the same way i mean it's really interesting seeing how it was used and what people's experiences of it was it seems to have worked okay uh for family mm. um be because one of the problems you have with with anything like this online um is you cannot have more than four people in a conversation period you know it's an, that that isn't how life works just like if you don't believe me just go and watch the next reception you're at you'll see it before your eyes <laughs> you cannot have more than four people in the conversation if a fifth person joins it'll be two conversations two separate conversations within 30 seconds if right. even that long now right. um the problem with digital media like you know zoom and skype and so on you can have 500 people on there but the thing very quickly gets dominated by the four people with the loudest voices and everybody else retreats into the background, um, you know, and, and, you know, and spends their time paying half an ear to the conversation and, and checking their news feeds and their email and watching the cats fighting in the backyard and uh, <laughs> all these other things to, that are there to distract you. So, so um, you know, the, that, that, you know, if, for family relationships are much more tolerant of four people uh, dominating the conversation because that's probably you know what happens anyway at, at, at thanksgiving <laughs> dinners <laughs> um uh, uh uh but it, you know it it doesn't work if it's not family it didn't seem to work terribly well uh after a while with groups of friends so a lot of people kind of you know had regular kind of once a week or maybe more often um zoom sessions with the 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 group of friends their girlfriends or, or or whatever um and it it kind of paled into a form of tedium after you know a month or two and, and and people just you know didn't get the buzz out of it i think that they expected family things work okay not friendships uh meetings with strangers or business meetings with the folks you work with uh just didn't have the kind of uh, excitement that you might have expected they don't and don't have the excitement of the kind of face-to-face -face. if you had that ex meeting is face-to-face it would be a completely different experience and it's because the dynamics of a face-to-face -face environment are very different and allow you to do more things form sub-conversations and things like that in a way you can't online yeah, I think one of the things that we did learn over the pandemic was that you can't actually replace a, a real, you know, sitting around having drinks with your friends with a Zoom cocktail hour. It's yeah. just not the same. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, I so, actually found it know. depressing, and I, I, you know, I think I tried a couple times, and then decided that that was making me feel worse than not doing it at all. <laughs> Just, uh, not to be too cynical, you know, uh, your dress doesn't get wet when somebody else spills their drink. No, <laughs> there's something missing. Totally different experience. <laughs> and, and I think that probably goes back to what the issue is here, and that is in the context of everyday meetings that we have with our friends casual meetings whether it's you know uh, for a coffee or just taking a walk in the park or having dinner with them or, or, or a beer in a bar or whatever it may be that you do we engage in a huge amount of physical contact with them we're forever you know patting them on the back and stroking their arms and giving them a hug and all these kind of things yeah we don't do it with everybody <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and it's very clear. I mean, we've, we've actually done studies of this all over Europe and in Japan, and the picture you get is very, very similar. Uh, how much of the body is you, is permissible to touch and you feel comfortable about touching somebody or them touching you depends very much on the closeness of the relationship. Mm. But once you get beyond about 50 people in your network we think it's probably about there and that would probably count out to about your cousins your good friends and your cousins and anybody else closer than that um beyond that number you you don't really engage in this physical kind of uh contact touching soft touch as it's sometimes called um with people and and by the time you get out to strangers you know, it's at arm's length and the only all over this, this huge sample across up and down and left to right of Europe and, and in Japan, every, everybody was absolutely consistent. If it's a stranger, the only place they're allowed to touch you is your hand. Hmm. Right. So which is basically saying I'm sort of extending a little bit of me in your direction, but you ain't coming any closer. <laughs> Not until I know you better. <laughs> so, yeah. but, uh, you know, aside from that side, for these kind of more central, meaningful relationships that we have, friendships and family relationships, you know, these kind of little casual touches are going on all the time. And they really uh, are, are harking back to the way primates use social bonding, uh, social grooming, leafing through the fur and, and removing bits of vegetation, rubbish and stuff, mm. um, is used to bond relationships. It's a very physical based thing. And of course we don't have, you know, a body full of fur anymore. Uh, we just have a, a little bit left on, on, on the top of the head, <laughs> as it were. Uh, and so in, because we don't have the fur covering to do all this, classic primate type social grooming leafing through the fur um we've substituted that with you know things like uh, caresses and and strokes and hugs and 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 the like because they do the same job and the same job here is triggering the endorphin system so we have this highly specialized neural system in the skin which is responds to one uh thing and one thing only and that is light slow stroking at a rate of just under two inches a second huh. and that and that is the speed of movement of the hands across the fur as they're sort of parting the fur when they're grooming each other 
that you see in primate social grooming. And it's sort of about the speed of, you know, a, a stroke on the arm or a, a pat on the back, as it were. And it, it tr it's triggering the endorphin system and providing this very, very old, ancient, if you like, primitive uh, mechanism that triggers the endorphin system and makes you feel bonded and, you know, obviously, you know, conveying other kinds of signals as well that, you know, I sometimes dis describe this as if you really want to know how somebody feels about you, ignore what they say, because it's probably lies anyway. <laughs> Check out how they touch you because you cannot lie in the when you touch somebody else it, it's a completely honest declaration of how you feel about them yeah um and you know that's what you should and it's, it goes back to this very very ancient primate um uh way of creating and building social bonds yeah that's so interesting it. yeah yeah you know we've we've added lots of other <clears throat> uh, mechanisms <clears throat> excuse me lots of other mechanisms on top of grooming so things like laughter and singing and dancing and feasting and telling stories and these kind of things which also trigger the endorphin system as it turns out but these supplement <clears throat> physical contact essentially yeah now i'm i want to talk a little bit more about loneliness and how people can combat it which is to say in part you know how do we make friends? You know, for people who are struggling, you often hear this thing and and I don't know, this has not been true in my case, so I don't actually buy it. But you often hear this thing where it's like you can't make friends after 30, you know, and it's it's so hard to make friends. And we all sort of especially I think in in North America, you know, in places like Canada, the US, in Britain also. I think people tend to start self-isolating more as they get older. Um, you know, maybe they get married and they have a family, so they sort of contain themselves to that bubble more. But then at the same time, people still, people get lonely, you know? So how do you make a true friend? How do you bond? Like, how are we bonding with one another? How do we form and maintain friendships that can combat this loneliness that is so not just sad, but, you know, as, as you found in all of your work and your research, it's, it's bad for your health. Yeah. And it's a big problem. I mean, we have been saddled uh, with a pandemic of loneliness, particularly among the 20 somethings moving away to their first job to a strange city where they don't know anybody outside mm -hmm. the work environment. So there's been a huge problem. Uh, it's been going on for several decades now. Um, but yes, I, I, I'm sort of tempted to say, Megan, you know, why are you asking me? I'm a boy. I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I seem to be doing okay in the friendship realm, so maybe I can answer it. And yeah, clearly you have no idea. <laughs> but you've done um, the research, so maybe other people have given you some hints. <laughs> the, the, the problem, I think, is, and I think this goes back I mean, you're quite right that there's a kind of um, period in life where you, in effect, start to lose friendships for one reason or another and don't replace them. Mm. Um, you know, in your teens and your 20s, I would say um, th this is a hyper social world. The whole point of existence is to engage socially because you're kind of looking for the lifelong 
friendship circles that you want to make. So I always describe that that age cohort as careful shoppers. You know, they're checking out all the supermarkets mm. to see where the best deals are. So they tend to have something pushing. By the time they get into their twenties, they often, if you ask them to list out their friendship networks, friendship and family networks, they'll often produce a figure closer to about 250 rather than 150. But by the 30s, that comes down to the official figure of 150 very quickly. You shed lots of those. I think most of that is the costs of uh, children, uh, just the sheer time costs involved and the exhaustion of having small children to look after. Um, uh, So you narrow down on the ones that are really meaningful. So in effect, you've kind of checked out all the supermarkets. You've decided which one supermarket is the best one to put all your money into. Um, uh, And then that remains fairly stable until you get through to probably about 65-ish. And then it starts to decline very steadily and quite fast. So, you know, you'll... And that's partly because our friends, indeed our family, the family that we feel close to tend to be the same age as us so they're now they're starting to die off they're also starting to move away because mm. they retire and they go to sunny florida or they want to go and live near the grandkids you know mm-hmm. the kids have moved off to uh, a different part of the country or maybe even the next country have gone to canada or something so you want to go and be near them to, to to enjoy your grandkids so a lot of your friends start to vanish and you just don't have the energy or the motivation to kind of fill the empty slots. Whereas, you know, in your teens and twenties, if, if, you know, a friend disappears off to uh, Australia or Thailand or somewhere and decides to stay there, you just go out to all the places <laughs> that you usually go to socializing and, and find a few more people. Um, so, so those effects, you know, seem to be very robust. They've been documented all over in data sets from Europe and North America and so on. Um, <clears throat> very widespread experience. The problem is if once you get, you know, I think in your 20s, your teens and 20s, you have a kind of ready-made social life for you in the sense that family and school, your kind of home community, your school, college, you know, they kind of create a a, a pool of potential friends that you can go meet up with and and, and make friends with mm-hmm. or not as, as as you prefer um it's what happens after that um it you know where do you go to meet friends i think this is the problem with with older people um you know you haven't been clubbing <laughs> since you you were in your mid 20s you you're not sure if you would be welcome <laughs> in a in a club because you're not sure who actually goes, right. <laughs> even if the doorman would let you in. <laughs> um, and you're not sure, you know, what do people talk about these days in those kind of places? <laughs> you know, you know what you talked about with your friends sitting, in, you know, in your little corner of the bar you always go to or, you know, the park bench you always sit on or, or you know, your backyard when you have friends around. You know what interests you? But, you know, uh, is that the case for anybody else? And then on top of that, you've got the other problem. The Jane Austen problem, as I always describe it, is namely just because you would like to be friends with somebody doesn't mean that somebody else is going to be your friend. 
right? Because they've already got friends. <laughs> and this is the problem for the 20-somethings going to their first job in the big city, you know, the other side of the country, yeah. is they're going into a, 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 they don't know where to go to meet friends that's kind of safe and congenial and has like-minded people there because they don't know, you know, the city at all. The only people they know are the people at work. Well, most of the people at work have got families, they've got friendship circles, they're busy, uh, they haven't the time to 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 pick you up and and to bring know. someone new on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because if they do, it means they've got to sacrifice an old friend, right? They've got to drop somebody. Yeah. Um, so so this is the core of the problem, and it you know it's I'm, I, I'm always reminded of. Uh, the girls in in Jane Austen's novels. I mean, she was such an acute observer of of human life and human foibles, as it were. And you know, here are all the Bennets and sisters and so on. You know, sort of desperately hoping that Mister Darcy will turn up. Well, the problem is, you know, there's ten of you girls in the village, and there's one Mister Darcy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and only one of you is going to get them. So, yeah. you know, what are the rest going to do? Well, you know, what what they did and what we do to this day, since she was just, you know, Jane Austen was just observing what people actually did, you know, is eventually you hang on and hang on and hang on in there, hoping that, you know, Mr. Darcy's double is going to turn up. And when eventually he doesn't, you decide that anything is better than nothing and you marry the curate. <laughs> <laughs> who's definitely second best <laughs> but you know what's the choice it's marrying the curate or you know not marrying at all effectively not having a friend um yeah. so yeah. so you settle settle for what what you can get and and you know therein lies part of the problem we're we're very picky and choosy for very good reasons of course in who we'd like to have friends with and we're always hankering after the perfect friend but at the same time, you know, we kind of make dues, what I call school gate friends. Um, it, this probably doesn't happen in the US, but it, it happens here. So you walk your kids to school or you drive them to school yourself. They, you know, uh, in many cases, particularly in, in the kind of uh, primary schools, but even in, in uh, junior high schools. And you're hanging around the school gates at the end of school day, waiting to collect your kids coming out. And you start talking to the other parents maybe. and kids come out and they say you know can I go and play with Jemima at her house you know and stay for tea and then you know it becomes can I stay the night and uh, going to her party and uh, so on and eventually the parents start to gravitate together pulled together by the, by the children mm -hmm. um, and this you know sometimes these friendships can be very enduring and and all-consuming you know you you uh, two families or maybe even three families spend a lot of time together barbecues in the backyard maybe even go away on holiday together uh, uh, every year uh, and then the children separate perhaps they go to different high schools or if you know if they go off to university they go to different universities and those friendships just evaporate literally evaporate overnight hmm. and you bump into the, the these people in the aisle in the supermarket several years later and you say oh we haven't seen you for ages how have you been oh, you must come around sometime and oh yes yes well yes definitely we must get together and you go away feeling warm, warm, warm and cozy and of course nothing happens right and then 12 months later you bump into each other in the aisle again same aisle <laughs> same super oh you must come around it's never gonna happen 
If that <laughs> friendship was a friendship of convenience, <laughs> right, created, right. it was of the moment, it was very satisfactory for the purposes that it existed for, which of course, you know, was the friendship of the kids primarily. You got, you know, you got some pos positive vibes out of it and all the rest of it, some yeah. good friends. That's not to say they're all like that before, before anyone starts sending you emails. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that seems to be such a common thing and you know it, it characterizes you know our friendships in general that a lot of often you know they're just circumstantial they're who's available and who's free right uh, right you know. yeah i mean it's sort of a tough thing uh because it's you know friendship as you say is so much about who's convenient no like who yeah. are you near who is around you yeah. who's doing the things that you want to do that's sort of like yeah. a, a a solid basis for a friendship is common interest and yeah being physically near one another yeah. okay let me just add one suggestion at the end is if you okay. if you are in a position where you want to uh, make friends then the best advice i have for you is join some kind of club even if you're mm. a, a girl um you know that's a boys environment you might say but no 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 if you're a girl. And if you're going to join any kind of club, I would join a singing club, a choir, <laughs> a choir. not necessarily, a, you know, not one to, to be doing Bach cantatas uh, at, at sort of, you know, sort of uh, performance level. I just mean a casual round a campfire, old community songs, modern pop songs, whatever type of singing, um, because singing has this an extraordinary effect we called it the icebreaker effect it seems to have this capacity to turn complete strangers into people who think they have known each other since kindergarten in just <laughs> an hour of singing together it's absolutely magical so any activity any kind of activity because it's just you know a club is like an environment to meet people or a church you know whatever that, that anything where where people come those are the places to go, uh, you know, and you'll find the one person who is also looking for a friend, if you like, much more easily there. But somehow there's something magical about singing uh, that produces this kind of intimacy in a way which almost nothing else does. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm glad you said that. And I love singing, so I'm all for that. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, your book, of course, is called Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. Um, I know you've written other books as well. Uh, where can people find this one and, and find your other work? Uh, I guess uh, in, in in any online bookshop, without mentioning any names near you, um, uh, <laughs> certainly the Friends is now available in bookshops in America. I think it came out there in um, uh, the spring. Um, um, and yes, there are various other books <laughs> uh, that go back many decades, I think. At, um... <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and, and thank you again for your time. Oh, great pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Okay. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and the opportunity to submit questions to future guests ahead of interviews. Plus, you can DM me to your heart's content and I will reply. You can also follow and support my work on Substack at meganmurphy.ca 
or you can support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page and the follow button, which ensures you don't miss new episodes. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors like you to sustain my work. You can donate directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.